with Rabbi Yossi Jacobson. And he's been with friends um, and a mentor to my family. He's been with us both in the best of times and also in the dark times five years ago. Um, so his reputation was received him, but there was no chance that for somebody who had not yet been inspired by him. He brought a Jacobson service as a teacher and a mentor with thousands of people around the world. Um, he's now sort of to speak up and do his well today. He's also the dean of the machine.net, um, teaching via the web, the um, biggest Torah class that exists uh, today globally. And in 1998, he, at the age of 15, Rabbi Jacobson served on a small team of Chaser, otherwise known as Human Taper Forest, if you will. Um, he memorized work for work with Bajra's brains, um, maybe up to seven hours long sometimes. So without further ado, Rabbi Yeshua Jacobson. Thank you very much, Mendel. Good luck to everybody. Welcome. I spent Shabbos in Beverly Hills in the community of uh, Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Yosef Nissen, and Rabbi Sanchami Kudin. We had a wonderful, wonderful Shabbos on the way to the airport on Friday. I asked Rabbi Yossi Kudin, where am I staying for Shabbos? So he told me, upstairs of my show, you'll stay there. So I'm thinking to myself, here I go with another nice Shabbos experience, <laughs> being put in some attic, on top of a show, between the desk, the garbage bags, the comic of an iron, the brochures, the boxes, and the mosquitoes. But later I found out that a shul was the Beverly Hills Hotel. So actually upstairs of the shul was the Aliyah Very, very lovely and royal accommodations. But we really had, and we had a wonderful Shabbos with the Cubans and the entire Simons family who were there. Nine of ten children, Leah and Hara, who came to commemorate the Shabbos before the yard site of their beloved parents who were killed in a horrific car accident, as you know, five years ago on the way from Sydney to Melbourne on the morning of Yudal of Tavis, the 11th of Tavis, and this is tomorrow night is the fifth yard set. So all the children came together. And for me, it was an incredible Shabbos uh, to watch them and observe them and be part of their commemoration. As I shared with them Friday night, they say in the name of the Balshantov that he once said, there are three possible responses to death. There are three ways in which people respond to loss. One is through silence, the Balshamtha said. The other way is through tears. And the third, he said, is through song. So his students asked, and they said, Rebbe, we can understand the response of the, to loss in tears. We can certainly understand responding through silence, more often than not, words violate, words uh, don't capture, words, if anything, tarnish the experience, the magnitude of pain, 
silence is appropriate. But we don't understand. We don't understand why would you say that an appropriate response would be through singing? And the Balshamtav said, you sing in order to continue the melody of the person who passed away, whose melody was interrupted. So you continue their song. The song, in other words, is not ignoring the loss. On the contrary, it's acknowledging the loss. You continue to sing the melody that the people, that the person or people sang. And I want to tell you that a whole Shabbos, they sang and sang and sang. I couldn't even eat. Because they were, all they wanted to do was sing and sing and dance. And there was a, 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 a real tribute to the melody of their parents. There was there the Rachel Simons of Renan Racha, who lived a life of joy and song. Shira Lashem So the interpretation is not just I will sing to God throughout my life, but Ashira Lashem Bechayah means I will sing to God with my life. Bechayah, with my life. Life is a song. This interpretation, by the way, that everyone's wrote to an Israeli poet. Ashira Lashem Bechayah. Life is a melody, and like a good melody, it has ups and downs, exhilarating moments, difficult moments, but it's a melody, it's a ballad. And uh, we bless them tonight that they should be able to continue to sing and continue their parents' melody with abundant health and happiness and prosperity and only blessings and sympathies for all the days of their life amongst all of you and all of us. So this question always perturbed me. I remember when I first read it as a child, we went to the school, in yeshiva, and the story and the question always perturbed me. It's probably the most anticipated reunion in all of the Tanakh. It's probably the most emotional encounter in all of the Tanakh. Twenty-two years, a father has been mourning and grieving for his beloved child. After more than two decades, he is notified that not only he's alive, he's the Prime Minister of Egypt, and he goes to me. And we, who have been following the drama, the journey, which occupies the second half of Sefer Bereshit from Vayesha, look forward with great anticipation. What will transpire during this encounter? How will Yahweh react when he sees Yosef? Will he talk? Will he cry? Will he dance? Will he sing? Will he weep? Will he embrace? Will he kiss? What will our patriarch Yahweh do when his eyes fall on the eyes of his most cherished and beloved son, Rachel's oldest, Yosef Asad? Alas, the moment comes.
and it's described in practice by Yigash, and you all heard it this morning during the reading of the Torah. And the Torah describes it in these words. By Yester Yosef Merkaftai, by Yahweh Kras Yisrael Yosef, Joseph, harnessed his chariot, and he traveled towards Yisrael, his father, Goshna, in the city of Gosh. By Yerei Love, he appeared to him. By Yiforlau Tzavara, and he fell on his neck. By Yiforlau Tzavara, and he wept on his neck even more. Yosef appeared to Yahweh, as Rashi says. He wept, he fell on his father's neck. He wept, and he wept more, and he wept excessively. And Yahweh? Nothing. Nothing. Later we have a conversation between them. Yahweh speaks to him. But at this moment, nothing. When Yaakov meets Esau, the Torah emphasizes how they embraced and they both weep. When Yosef meets Binyamin, the Torah emphasizes they both weep. When Yosef meets Yaakov, his father, the father who said, I'm going to go down to my grave in mourning over the loss of my son, the son that we believe has been devoured by a wild animal. 22 years earlier when he saw the tunic soaked in blood. When Yaakov sees his son, there's absolutely no response. No falling on his neck, no kissing, no weeping, no embracing. Nothing of what happened with the other brothers with Binyam and with Asa earlier. Nothing, not even a kiss. So we wonder what happened. So Rashi says, Rabbi Seinuam, our Rabbi said, Yaakov was busy. What was he doing? He was saying, Shema. I once asked this in a shul. So there was a brisket down. He says, You know, I don't want to say Shema. So basically, I said, so Yaakov was telling me, Laman, Let's do it again. Yosef is leaping, Father, Father, and he's Yosef didn't have to say Shema. Yosef wasn't have to say Shema. When did he say Shema? Either earlier or after. Sunrise, or right before sunrise, you say Shema to the Lord Right then, he said Shema. It's a little, it's different, it's more than a little difficult to comprehend, difficult to understand. So this question has been raised and discussed throughout the generation. Rabbi Shimshir Rafal Hirsch, in his commentary on Chumash, which he wrote in German. He wrote, he writes, that uh, after 22 years, Yankov had no tears left. They all tried. Yosef was working. Yankov was mourning. 
Yosef was engaged in labor. Yaakov was engaged in grief. His arms, the source of his tears, have dropped. That's what your first says. But he doesn't even hug, he doesn't kiss, he doesn't embrace. He was a famous student of Rav Kook. His name was Yaakov Moshe Harlan. And he writes that Yaakov did not want to display public emotions towards Yosef in front of his brothers. Because he remembered what happened when he kissed him last time. Not in the form of a kiss, but in the form of a sinus person of a multicolored tunic. He decided this time we display no emotions in public. He speaks to him, but, and also privately. But publicly, he remained cool. He remained, so to speak, uh, introverted, reserved. The Maharal writes, the Maharal of Pran, and we have come to the Maharal, he writes a few interpretations. One of them is that Allah is a little of Shema, you don't want to make an interruption. But there are exceptions. One is the mission of the beginning of Shrekhid Brothers. There are interruptions which are permissible when you have to pay honor to somebody or when you're in fear of somebody. Without that, you're not going to make an interruption in Shema. Yahweh was reading Shema. Yosef was also reading Shema. They happened to meet in the middle of Shema. Yosef was obligated to respect Yahweh, so he interrupted the Shema. Yaakov was not obligated to respect Yosef. He was forbidden to interrupt the Shema. Rabbi Yosef Salavetsev writes that for 22 years, Yaakov prayed to fulfill the mitzvah of the Shinan Teach your children there, which he did not have an opportunity to do with Yosef, because he didn't have 22 years. So the first moment that he had what does it mean he read Shema? He was excited about the mitzvah of the Shema, and after now he can teach his child to All these interpretations, notwithstanding their intrigue, still, I think, leave us wanting. There's another interpretation of the Maharals and the interpretation of the Hidushi There's many interesting interpretations, but I want to discuss this evening in a lecture dedicated to education, to relationships, marriages, Hidush, the deeper, we'll call approach based on the teachings of Chabad Hasidus. I want to begin by quoting an interesting debate in Halacha, in Jewish law. The Mishnah says in Brothers that when three people sit down to eat a meal, when three people sit down for a meal, they break bread, there's an obligation, they shouldn't just separate. They should do what's called zimur, make up a zimur. Grace, Birkas, and Muslim should be set together as a single unit. But then the Mishnah continues, what about if the food they were eating was forbidden food? It was food that was forbidden. Then there's no obligation for them to make a zimur. The Rambam, in the world of brothers, 
based on this Mishnah says, if somebody eats something that's forbidden, it's non-kosher, biblically or rabbinically, they should not make a blessing. I guess this is a Jew who's learning Ramah, and who wants to know if he should make a blessing or not make a blessing, but he's eating something forbidden. Don't make a blessing, not before, not after. Derive it. Rabbeinu Abraham ben David in his comments on the Ramah says he made a mistake, he made an error. What the Mishnah means is not that you shouldn't make a blessing before or after, you could make a blessing. The Mishnah means you shouldn't make a mezumim. Zimun you should not have. In other words, if three people are sitting together and they're eating forbidden bread, it's bread that they did not give truma or miser from, whatever it is, bread they're not allowed to eat. So this meal should not have a zimun. Blessing they should bless. Interesting. Everybody should bless, but they can't bless together. They can't have somebody say, you're a voice sign of elementary. Now the Rambam is like, yeah, I understand. But you say, Hashem, he says, you're eating forbidden food that God tells you not to eat. What are you blessing? So it's a blessing that comes with a stamp. What is the verse says until the point, say a very it's Hashem. The blessing is a curse. I can understand. The writer says, don't make a blessing. But zero you can't make. You can't bless together. You can't say Rabbi said, the word Rabbi says, we say Mavalan Bench, let's bless. Why not? Blessing individually, everybody should bless when they eat comments on Pesach. They're eating pizza for Pesach. I'm not talking about pizza in the hotels that everybody eats. I'm talking about real good old fashioned pizza on Pesach. Flour and water. Uh, you should, but no Mazumin. Why? What's going on with So there's a story. There's a story I want to share with you. The story takes us back to the year, here's a little trivia, the year that they presented the Statue of Liberty to the United States in Paris. You remember? You were there, yeah? The year they presented the Statue of Liberty to the United States in Paris, 1884. It's a few years before you were born. Not long, but a few years. 1884. But it's a story of that year, but in a different location of the world, not in Paris. It's a little town in Belarus. It's called Lubavitch, the town of Lubavitch. There's a little apartment. The apartment consists of two bedrooms. One bedroom is two rooms. What is a bedroom? For the husband and wife of the apartment. And one is a study. It's the apartment of the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, known as the Rebbe Rashad, Rabbi Shalom Dayu Beresh 1884, one year after his father passed away, the Rebbe Rashad. He's sitting late at night and he's learning with his Chavrusa. His Chavrusa was a Jew named. I think he had a son who lived in California, no? Rabbi Mordechai Bezkalov, who later became the rabbi of a city called Paltava, in the center of the Ukraine. Paltava, not far from Hapich, where the Alter Rebbe is interred as soon as the Yartsev, 200 Yartsev. He's known as the Paltava Rav, the Rav. Paltava was a Chavrusar of the Rebbe Rashan. And they're learning together. Who else was in that room? A four-year-old, a three-year-old boy, and a little cat. The Rebbe Rashan's son, Yosef Yitzchak, 
who later would succeed his father and become the Rebbe Rayat, the sixth Lubavitcher and the father of the Rebbe. He was three or four, 1884, he was born in 1880, he was born in 1884, in the Hebrew, and he's sleeping, and the two people are learning. The Palkamera, I guess they finished the learning, looks at the boy in the, in the cot, and he tells his father, his young father, he says, you look at a face, and you're sensitive, you can see what type of person it is. Looking at your little boy, the four-year-old boy, the purity of his face, the kenzen, the tyrus and ashara. You can see the purity of his thoughts, the purity of his soul, the purity of his mind. The Rashad, the father, took a look at his little boy. As he related the story, he said, I wanted to, I had a tremendous desire to give him a kiss. He was beautiful. He was angelic. He was adorable. These are my words. He was cute. He was pure. And as we know, he was holy too. And the Rebbe said, I wanted to give my boy a kiss. So I decided to do something. I went, I took a pen, I took paper, and I wrote down a minor. A Hasidic discourse I penned begins with the words, How great is your creation, God. A very deep Chabad Hasidic minor of the works of the Rebbe Rashad. I took the minor, I put it in my drawer. He did not kiss his child. Eight years pass. It's now Tafresh Nunbeis. Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak is twelve years old. This story happened in eighteen eighty-four. This is now eight years later. So it's eighteen ninety-two. He calls in his twelve-year-old boy. He opens up the drawer, he takes out his mind and his discourse, Marabu Masafa, he gives it to his child, and he says, with time, I will tell you the story. The boy takes it and goes and studies it and keeps it. Four years later, he's 16 years old. Now, the year is 1886, 1896. He calls him in as a 16-year-old boy, and he tells him the whole story. That night, when he was learning, and I stood in, I wanted to give you a kiss, instead I wrote a minor, and that's the minor I gave you four years ago when you were 12 years old. And he says to his son, he says, Here is a Hasidic kiss. These were the words he gave him when he said the minor when he was twelve. When he gave it to him, he said, Nabira Hasidish Adush, and I'll explain to you in time. And four years later he told him the story why he called it a Hasidic kiss, because it came in room of the kiss that was reserved for him so many years earlier in eighteen eighty four. And the Rebbe repeated this story that he heard from his father in law during the Shiva 
for his father. After Yitzhak, when he passed away in 1950, so one of the days after Darwin, it was in Shuvah upstairs, in the seventy on the second floor, and the Rebbe said that we don't eulogize according to our custom, but stories we say. So he's going to share some stories, and he shared this story that he heard from his father-in-law about this type of kiss. I read the story many years ago, and I had the same question. Why couldn't he kiss him? Why couldn't he bend down? Can you this big four-year-old a kiss? What do all of us in this room do when we have a desire to give our child a kiss? Whether our boy wants or doesn't want, usually. We have him, and we give him a kiss, and he says, No, leave me alone. It's not about you. <laughs> it's about me. I want to give you a kiss. We hold on to him, we give him a kiss. Right? Until he finally gets his cheek away, or her cheek away, and we let them go to continue to uh, beautify our homes and our lives. Why wouldn't he give his son a kiss? He wouldn't give him a kiss. He wanted to write a minor. Write a minor. Give a kiss and write a minor. No, he would not give his boy a kiss. He would write a minor. And then years later he would tell him, Here is the constitution push. I want to understand what's behind this story. So, I will humbly express to you my thoughts on the matter. This is what I think. But I believe that in this issue lay a very fundamental question. It's a question that faces every generation, but particularly it faces our generation, and I think many, many people sitting here in this audience. And it goes back to the question of why Yaakov, instead of kissing Yosef, would read the Shema. There are two ways of looking at the story. One is a very common one. One is a much deeper way of looking at it. But this question of how you look at it is not an academic, abstract question about a story that occurred thousands of years ago between Yaakov and Yosef, or a story that occurred more than a century ago between two rebels. It's a story that has very profound practical relevance to our lives. And it has to do with the question of what is the relationship between religion and emotional health. Now, it's a loaded question. It's a loaded question. I remember a student once came to me and he told me that he decided to become secular. He said, Mazel Tov. When is the party? You will invite me. Will it be kosher food? Can I eat there? I say, what's the motivation behind it? So he told me, I'm sick and tired of the emotional constipation. Nice words. Nice poetic words. I said, which emotional constipation? He said, by definition, people that are religious, they, their emotions don't flow free because everything is a rule. You're allowed you now, now, yes, no, now, yo, now I could, now I can. So I, I want to be natural, I want to be free, I want to be expressive. 
I cannot have inhibitions in my life. I have to live a free, uninhibited, self-actualized life. My relationship with my spouse, my relationship with myself, my relationship with my children, I can't allow, in his words, a deity, yeah, you know when you hear those words, to govern, I'm not going to finish the sentence, but the content of the sentence was, I'm not going to allow a deity to govern, you know, <laughs> when I... Uh, when I connect to somebody, I love them when I don't connect. I can't do it. And I'm not going to have a rabbi with a long beard, right? Telling me and dictating me that under these circumstances I could have a relationship. I just can't deal with it. I have to be free. Liberty. Self-actualization. Beautiful words. This question of the story of Yaakov and Yosef, I believe, touches on this very subject. And it's a fundamental question today, it's a fundamental issue today. It's a struggle or a dilemma that many have in one form or another. It's a good sign, I know, that you're Baruch Hashem, Jewish. When I speak to Gentiles, and I say, shut off your cell phone, so they do it immediately. <laughs> Gentiles are obedient. When I ask Jews to follow their phone, even now, you'll soon hear in a few minutes, there's going to be another phone. Baruch Hashem, you don't need a conversion, so that's the good news. Okay. Hey, Fine. You'll send them my regards on your So here's a story. I was once learning Hasidus. One of my teachers, Rabbi Yoel Khan, he was the chief chayzer, the chief oral scribe of the Rebbe for many years. Should be well. And he told us a story. The Baal Shem Tov every day for four hours, approximately. The students would be there and they would watch it and listen. Every day, a person would come. Who was he? He was an alcoholic, but not just an alcoholic. He was an alcoholic who was an addicted alcoholic, but addicted par excellence, a true, most authentic addict. This is what he did. He drank day and night. And he, for all people, would come every day to the Moshantu's Dominic. So they went right after Dominic, he would go to the bar in Mezhebush, the city in Ukraine, the city where the Moshevs lived, and he would get inebriated, completely intoxicated, and that's how he spent much of his day. And night. So they once asked him, Mama claimed the base of Taurus, as the Talmud says, what does an alcoholic have with the Moshevs of And he said, something profound. Sometimes people that are alcoholics, generally addicts, destroy their lives. But sometimes they have very interesting insights. In the community where I grew up, in the primary section of Brooklyn, there was a shikha, an alcoholic who stood there. We call him Zaman the Shikha. Some of you know him probably, you know, Zaman the Shikha. He'd lie on the bench of Eastern Parkway for weeks, months, years on end with bottles of crown oil. 
He was a cross of seven. Seven is every fabricant. But there ever there is the Shirai and the remnants would go in. Zalman the Shekhet was an, is an interesting person. Once I met him, and he tells me his insights from time to time, and I repeat them in my lectures. <laughs> <laughs> Sober people is usually not worth talking to. But alcoholics uh, sometimes have interesting things to say, because amidst chaos and destruction, some death emerges. So he tells me, he says something. He says, You know how the prayer begins? He says, you know that I say, yeah, the ancient borrowed the kings of Shemaim. He says, God created heaven and earth. He says, and what does Rashi say? I thought Rashi said, oh, Rabbi Yitzchak. Rabbi Yitzchak said, well, how you started to ask for the Tari Elam HaChidosh HaZalachim? The Tari had to begin after me or somewhere else. He says, no, no, you're reading the Rashi wrong. Let me read it to you. The Pasuk says, the ancient borrowed the kings of Shemaim. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. There was no need for it. There was absolutely no need for it. I heard it. There was no need He's right. The word says, It would have been easier not to be created. They argued, the verdict is, It would have been easier not to be created. The guy had a point. So they asked us, Why did he come to the Bhagavad So this is what he said. He said, every single craving in the world, every single addiction in the world, every single yearning and pining that a person has, as intense, as potent, and as powerful as it is, it's limited. A human is mortal, a human body is transient, a human emotion may be overwhelmingly intense, but it's finite. It can be infinite because a human being is not infinite. He says, I love alcohol. I have a problem. My craving is finite. So therefore, when I fulfill my craving, it's a finite fulfillment. I need a deeper experience. So I come to the Boshantas Dharma. And his gardening touches upon something that's infinite. Somehow. So what that does is it fuels my craving with something infinite. And then when I go drink, ah, it's a different drink. Now it's a drink. Now it's a different type of fulfilling of the drink. This is what he's doing. <laughs> but, but what, what, what this person said, we should think about. Every action we take, as exciting, and as passionate as it may be, every emotion that we have, as intense as it may be, is mortal, it's limited, it's finite. We are mortal, our feelings, our actions, our experiences are bound by mortality. Even the most loving kiss in the world, it fades away after your child wipes the moist off his cheek, it fades away. You can have very powerful feelings. We all have very powerful feelings. But the feelings move on. They change. We change. Our feelings change. Our experiences change. A person is limited. Our emotions are limited. Even if they're genuine. And even if they're not superficial. And even if they are deep. The Rashab, the Rashab, was sitting 
He was looking at his child. He wanted to give him a kiss. But he then thought about two things. Number one, when I give my child this kiss, who will be the beneficiary of the kiss? Me or my child? Me. My child is asleep. I want to kiss him. What? I want to kiss him. But what will my child have? Now, most of us, as I said before, when we kiss, we don't think so much about that. I want to kiss, I kiss. You like it, good. You don't like it, tough luck. I'm your father. Go live with somebody else. You want me to kiss by me. As long as you're mine, I'm the truth. When I want to kiss you, I kiss you. And I don't want to go. But you haven't put me sleeping. So I want to kiss him. No, what's it do with one? It has to do with me. It has to do with my desire. Number one. Number two, how long is it going to last for? Two seconds, three seconds, six seconds, nine seconds. A real wet kiss, 13 seconds. I'll forget about it. I'll forget about it. How many times are you kissing him? Five feet around. Did you ever want to give a kiss? Not only for himself, but for the child. And a kiss that will last forever. So what did he do? He didn't kiss him. He took the energy. He took the love. He took the passion. He sublimated it. He harnessed it. He directed it. And he transferred it into something transcendental, eternal, and timeless. He took it and he converted it into a minor. And a minor, I can tell you, it is. And in it, he impressed, he contained all of his love towards that boy. And eight years later, calls him in, takes something out of the drawer, and he says, now you're a solution. And four years later, he explains to him the story. Now I ask you a question. If he would have kissed his boy, even when he was up, how long would he remember the kiss for? A minute, two minutes, four minutes, even a day. Now, till the end of his life, till the end of his life, the previous Lubavitcher ever the ever I asked, remembered and internalized his father's kiss. Why? He didn't repress his emotion. He didn't cover up his emotion. He was not suffering from a form of emotional constipation. He was not hiding his emotion. He was not embarrassed of his emotion. He took his emotion and he turned it into something authentic and genuine that a child will benefit from and that a child will benefit from eternally for the rest of his life. After years after his father passed away, he can open up the manuscript, he can remember it, he can study it, he can learn it, he can teach it, and he feels the kiss of his father. So when his father said, not dear, not sufficient Bush, what was he telling him? He was telling him there's two types of kisses in the world. There's a kiss in which you think about your emotion right now, not even about the other person. And even if you think about the other person, it's, a, it's momentary. And then there's a kiss that's completely directed towards you, and it's a kiss that will never fade away. That's eternal. 
So Yaakov did not see his son for 22 years. The emotions were overwhelming. And then came the day and the moment when the two met. Yaakov now sees his son in front of him. What should he do? What would you do? Naturally, fall on him, embrace him, kiss him, cry. As Yaakov did before. As Yosef did towards Yaakov. But Yaakov knew something. Yaakov knew as powerful as this moment is, it's going to pass. And it will give way to the daily patterns of life. To the daily nitty-gritty hustling and bustling and boredom and monotony of life. And Yaakov asked himself a question. How can I give Yosef the love that I want to give him at this moment that number one will be completely his number two will be completely his forever for eternity. Now, people naturally are fragmented. I am I, you are you. I have my ego to take care of, you have your ego to preserve. You have to care for your own, I have to care for my own. We live in a fragmented, divisive world. Even if we come together in different partnerships, it's because there's a mutual benefit. There was a philosopher who once said, we don't love other people, we love our version of them. There's a truth to it. I find some benefit in you, you find some benefit in me. Business partners, other partners, relationships, people come together, I need you, you need me, so I love you because I love me and somehow you enhance my life. That's essentially the cynical and pretty genuine, pretty authentic description of most loves in the world. Yeah. Is there a possibility for unity? Is there a real possibility for unity between two people? How could there be? There is no the founder of the Muslim movement. He once saw a Jew eating chicken with a lot of passion. Like Jews eat chicken at Kiddushin and Babitzkas. Not at the Sanjibus, but in other cities. So he asks the Jew, why are you so excited about the chicken? So he says, they have lived, they have lived the, the, the flesh. I love the chicken. He says, really, you love the chicken? He says, yeah, mama's love it. So he says, it's interesting. Is this what you do to all things you love? I mean, this chicken you had it slaughtered and plucked and sliced and sautéed and fried and roasted and cooked and then you're going to take it and convert whatever is left into your bloodstream? I mean, this is what you do with all people you love? You have them slaughtered and so on and so forth. You don't mean you love the chicken. You love your taste buds. You love your abdomen. And it happens to be that the chicken serves your taste buds very well. It's not the chicken you love. It's your taste buds you love so you can have the chicken. Don't feel 
Isn't this true about much, much love in the world? I love you because I get something from you. Call it romance. Call it intimacy. Call it camaraderie. Call it advice. Call it humor. Call it passion. Call it wisdom. Call it even a good breakfast. But I get something from you. You get something from me, so we like each other. Is there a possibility for a deeper type of unity? It's very difficult. It's very difficult. Comes out to Rebbe in Tanya chapter 32, ladies, and he says, Not really. <laughs> Not really. Doesn't work. There's no such a thing. I love me. That's the rule. I am I. I love me. You love you. That's the way it should be. That's natural. There's only one way to really love. There's only one real way to love. What's the way to love? If we could somehow find a place in which we're one. But we're not. That's the problem. But the truth is, that we come from one source. There's a source that we both come from. So if I can somehow go back to that source, if I can align my identity with my source, and you can align your identity with your source, and that source is one, we can find genuine integration and synthesis because the you and the I can merge together in that oneness. The more I can transcend my externality, and touch the one source within me, the more I can love genuinely. The more detached I'm from my source, the less I can really love. This, I'll listen to the beauty where spirituality, Kabbalah, and Allah emerge. The Raimut says, when you're eating forbidden food, right? You're eating chametz, bagel, chalam, pesach. Make a blessing. But you can't make a mezuma. What's a mezuma? A mezuma is that halakha recognizes a unit of three people, or four, or ten, or twenty, as a singular unit. That one person can say, Rabbi Sayyidina, and actually in the strict halakha, he does the grace, and they listen to him, and it's considered that everybody did it. They don't even have to say the words as long as they listen to his words. In other words, they become completely one unit in the blessing. He says, if they're eating forbidden foods, they can make a blessing, they can thank God, but they can't become one unit. Because the only way for people to transcend their individual ego and become one with another person is if they recognize their divine source, which unifies them. But they are not recognizing their divine source, because if they were, they they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be eating so the very act of what they're blessing is they're saying, we're not interested in our source. We're detached from our source. Then you can't really connect. Then you're in the narcissistic, selfish modality of life. You're in the selfish modality of life. La hate and appetites. Bon appetit, but you cannot do a mazumah. They say the first Gary Rebbe, the Kiddushi Harib, the Vips of Mordechai Alter, once went into a wealthy man, he needed from him a contribution for something, and he saw that the man is eating a ham sandwich. So he says in Yiddish, Tzomakotit, which means good appetite. He says, Rebbe, if you would see what I'm eating, you wouldn't speak that way. He says, it's precisely because I see what you're eating that I'm blessing you to be an appetite. He says, because I want you to be a mover of the and not a mover of the which means in halakha there's a distinction between somebody who violates the mitzvahs just because of an appetite and somebody who does it for just to uh, 
spite God. He says, I'm wishing you to the evidence it should be to a good effort that it should be the payoff and not lies. But unity that I would say it cannot be. Now Yahweh meets his son Yosef. He can kiss him. But there's two types of love. There's a love that's momentary. There's a love that's eternal. There's a love that comes from my emotion at this moment. It's mortal, it's finite, it's limited. There's another love that comes from my and your relationship with the divine. That we have one source. And that's infinite. That's timeless. That's endless. It's not subjected to decline, to decadence, to weakness, to death. Jacob could have followed his instinct, unleashed all the love, all the grief, all the sadness, all the joy, all the bound up emotions for 22 years, fallen on Yosef's neck, wept. We would read the verse, we might also weep. I'm talking about deception. The extraordinary moment would pass. The deepest emotions would be replaced by the daily patterns of life. And the journey would move on, as they say. Yaakov, at that moment, decided to give his son something deeper. Something that would embrace him for eternity. So what did he do? He did not say the Shema because he decided instead of kissing, he's going to say the Shema. That's a very superficial interpretation. The kiss was converted. It was harnessed into the Shema. When Rashi says, what was he doing? It wasn't in lieu of the embrace. In lieu of the kiss of grace. That was the kiss. He took all the boundless passion that he had for so many years and he channeled it into a single verse. Which, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Eloheinu, Hashem Echod. One. The oneness of God. A oneness that includes all of existence and it certainly includes Father and Son. He channeled the atomic passion and burning love into the divine and he thus secured it for eternity. Now, decades later, Yahweh passes away. Yosef can't see his father's face. But whenever he said, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, what did he have at that moment? Whenever Yosef said, Shema Yisrael, he could touch his father's deepest heart. He could touch his father's profoundest love. He can feel his father's presence, oneness, love, and impact in him. And thousands of years later, every time we say Shema Yisrael, we too can touch what Yahweh felt that moment when he met Yosef, which may be one of the reasons that in their most painful moments, the darkest moments, Jews would say Shema Yisrael, and part of it may be because it's what Yaakov said when he met Yosef. And they felt a unity and a connection and a strength that he gave Yosef and he gave all of his descendants for thousands of years. 
Every father and mother want to love their children. Every father and mother want to give their children a beautiful life. The American nation, the world really was stunned hearing and watching the scenes of Sandy Hook Elementary School last Friday, December 14th. And parents, every parent had probably the same thought, watching so many parents being forced to bid farewell to their beloved, angelic six and seven year old children because of the senseless murder of so many children and their heroic teachers and staff members of the school. It cuts a knife into every sensitive heart. And uh, presents a unique type of pain. There was a Jewish poet, Bialik, who once said that the revenge for the blood of a child Satan did not create yet. There's something about the blood of a child that strikes us in a very deep way because children have this innocence. And you just think, what went through those children's minds moments before they met their own barbaric and tragic end because a 20-year-old monster decided to take his mother's lives and their lives. And it, it brought to mind the great question that America is now facing. What are we supposed to do? And everybody is obsessed with theories and answers of how to stop the violence, gun control, and, and mental health, and security in schools, and armed teachers, etc., etc. Many ideas which have merit, and have value and have significance and will probably be debated for a while and so forth. It's sad, I was saddened by the fact that from all the articles, I have not seen too many, very, very few, that focused on one of the most important issues. And it was almost completely ignored. Guns are dangerous, they're very, very dangerous. So, uh, Senator Monian, uh, Senator Moynihan once said, guns don't kill people, bullets kill people. So now, not gun control is bullet control. But bullets also don't kill people. People kill people. People use guns to kill people. So guns are dangerous and one has to be very careful and it's a whole separate subject about gun control. But it's people that use the guns that kill people. It's almost like the guns. The guns are guns. Knives are dangerous. But stabbings don't happen because there are knives. Stabbings happen because people stab. The same is true with shootings. Then there's a second issue. Mental health. This boy, Lanza, Adam Lanza, was Asperger's. He had Asperger's syndrome, which is on the autistic spectrum. He had this part of autism. So the obsession is, there's not enough mental health professionals giving care to mentally challenged children. Extremely important. But we all know many autistic children. I know many, many Asperger's children. I know many, many Asperger's adults. I know many people with many mental challenges. On one level or another level. And we know many Asperger's children who would not, or adults who would not harm, who would not harm another human being. What is it about? Of course, mental health, guns, very important critical issues. 
But it's really about, most importantly, character and moral conscience of people. And yet, very little attention was placed on the need to focus on educating children and giving them a moral conscience, developing their character with proper values, teaching them right from wrong. Today, the public school system in the United States of America, the argument to live one way or not another way, is based on very superficial rationalizations. You should be nice one. That's what your teacher said. That's what your mother said. That's what the police want. That's what the law wants. Very superficial argument. To teach children the idea that the divine creator created them, expects from them certain behavior, observes everything they do, and created a difference between right and wrong, children get it, and mentally challenged children get it very well, and maybe even deeper than others, because the only one who can really understand them are not ordinary people but God. So to deprive them from a relationship with God is more heinous than depriving anybody else because that's the only one who they feel can even understand them because he created them and he molded them with all of them, molded them with all of their challenges and flaws and deficiencies. So they need that relationship more than everybody else. So when we right away go to the mode of gun control where the guy snapped, he's crazy, what it tells us right away is there's nothing really to do. Because it's unexpected, you're dealing with a Meshuggah and you can't control a Meshuggah It's a tragic mistake because 98% of cases 98% of youngsters can be molded, can be educated to have a powerful moral conscience, to have proper values in life, to be able to be inculcated with an idea of right and wrong and understand that at the depth of reality lies a creator who wants from them to live a certain way and this is good and this is evil and this is right and this is wrong. This concept, this angle, is almost completely ignored. And it's a terrible, terrible mistake because the last few decades, when we eliminated this concept from education in most schools, public schools, the violence in the United States of America has increased dramatically, dramatically. Because we make a mistake. Society believes that people are all good, and therefore, if you leave a child to his or her own devices, they will behave well. And if somebody behaves cruelly, it's either because they're poor, or they were abused, or they're deprived, or they're crazy, or they're mentally challenged, or they're very angry, or they're antisocial, or they fail their exam, and therefore they snap. Yetzir Leba the Rami Maluru, Judaism teaches that people can be saints and they can be monsters. We have a lot of good in us, and we all have a lot of evil in us. And that evil has to be tamed. The evil has to be worked with. A child needs to be educated that is right and wrong and he's expected or she's expected to behave rightly because God expects it from them and will hold them accountable for it. This children can understand. They're not good on their own. They have a good side, but they also have another side. You know the famous story that there was a... Uh, today in school, there was once a uh, couple that came to a rub in the middle of the night. So he says, what do you need? It's two in the morning. So we had a terrible fight. What about? We have a grist tomorrow and we're fighting over the name. He says, what do you want? He asked the mother. She said, I want the name to be Moshe. Turns to the father, what do you want the name to be? The father says, I want the name to be Moshe. He says, wow, a classic Jewish fight. You want Moshe. You want Moshe. Why don't you give the name Moshe? No. Why can't it be for both? 
She says, never. I will not allow my son to be named after my father-in-law. She says, why not? He says, because my father was a mensch. My father-in-law was a ganem, a goblin, a shatrin, a reseyach. He was a horrible person, terrible, despicable lowlife. The elder of my spine, I'm not going to have my son named after the rabbi turns to the husband, you say, says, I'm not going to argue with my wife, but uh, my father wasn't upset, but it's my father. He says, okay, let me think about it. They come back ten minutes later, the rabbi says, okay, the verdict is, the name of the boy will be Moshe. Genius. <laughs> they both scream, after who? After who? So the rabbi says, for that, we have to wait till the child grows up. And then he will determine himself through his behavior after who he is named. After your father, after your father. We all have two marshes in us, and we all have two people in us, and one has to be channeled, one has to be actualized. And here we come to this issue of education for ourselves and our own relationships. And that is, there is a terrible mistake that creeped in to many young people's minds and hearts. Many of my own beloved friends, community members, in many different places. And that is that the paths of Halacha, of Shulchanara, and of Judaism are good for couples who are not into having fun, and for couples who are inhibited in their own relationships, their relationships with their children. But marriages that want to be exciting and passionate and romantic and loving and interesting and engaging and families that are to be open and free and open-minded and not repressed and fully expressive, for that we have to bid farewell at least to some of the more repressive restrictions of ritual that our parents or grandparents or mentors or teachers are so into. And thus a new ethos developed among many families and many couples where although they still appreciate many of the ritualistic aspects of Judaism, for example, a Friday night meal, you can't be too against a Friday night meal. But nonetheless, when it comes to, to laws of modesty or a family purity, Tarasamish or what's in the house, or the energy in the house, or how they behave with each other. There we said goodbye to many of the ancient laws of the Shulchanara of Halakha for the sake of what seems like a more exciting relationship. This is a challenge, a dilemma that faces many young people today. And I understand them. I understand them very well. Why? Frankly, Many of them have, I don't know how to say it nicely, they have had a very perverse education. What do I mean? No one ever explained to them that a relationship, that if you read, the more you love truth, the more you will love your wife. And the more you have a real relationship with God, the more you'll be able to have a real relationship with your child. And the more you will refine your body, the more your love in your house will be deep. And the more you challenge your materialistic shell, 
the deeper and longer your romance will last. And the more powerful you are in touch with your spiritual values and cores, the more potent and fun and exciting will be your own relationship in your marriage and generally in life. Why? Because there's one source of unity in the world. All fun and excitement fades away. We get bored of people, they get bored of us. People change people's bodies and people's lives and people's circumstances and people's uh, charm. Life, as you know, is very interesting. <laughs> and life can be very challenging. When your entire sense of love and romance is based, this is what we feel as two 21-year-olds or two 24-year-olds or two 30-year-olds, happy-go-luckies, it's awesome. However, life brings about lots of different changes in the world. If you want to secure a love that doesn't come today and fade away tomorrow, one that will not alter with different circumstances and challenges and ups and downs, you must, you owe it to yourself to develop a relationship with your own God. You owe it to yourself to be able to find your soul. I have to be able to go beyond my ego, I have to be able to go beyond my externalities, I have to go be able to go beyond my narcissistic, material, indulgent identity, and I have to touch the core of my godliness, and then, and then, I can give my children not just a kiss when I'm in the mood, but I can give my children a kiss when they need it, and a kiss that will last them a lifetime, but is not coming from my own selfish needs, as sensual as they sound, but it comes from my ability to transcend myself. The deeper you pray, in shalom, the more warm your kiss to your child when you come home. The more you challenge your ego, the more you learn, the more your love towards your spouse can be. The more in touch you get with your own God, the more you're bound to Emmanuel or Allah, the more powerful longevity in your romance and excitement, both with your spouse and with your children. There's a reason, there's a reason that thousands of years later, there's a reason for it, that there's something the Jews got right when it came to family life. There's a reason for it. There's a reason that sadly in the larger society in LA or in New York, the percentages of fragmented families are enormous. Now you and I know that in the Orthodox, you well, know very well, that in the Orthodox world is far from a perfect world. far from an ideal world. And you all know that many marriages in our midst are difficult, they're challenging. Because, just because people keep Shabbos and keep kosher and keep family purity doesn't mean they have a good marriage. You have to work on a good marriage. But what it does mean is that the Shulchan gives a manual that if a couple was ready to work on themselves, it creates a structure and it creates an energy and it creates a light that allows, allows and is more conducive for people who want to work on themselves for a marriage to blossom, for a marriage to prosper. 
a student of mine came to me, another student, he played violin, and he told me that he hates Judaism. <laughs> I'm laughing because I get a lot of these interesting people come, they say, so I told him why, so he said the regulars, repression, repression, the R, the triple R, repression, repression, repression. Okay, he wants to be free. I said, okay, welcome to the club. You're here with your violin. He's here with his violin. I said, let me see your violin. I don't know anything about a violin. Teach me a little bit. So he teaches me the basics of violin, beautiful instruments, tremendous instrument. I'm looking at the violin. And then I take out a scissor. And I put it in one of the courts. And I start to cut so Rabbi Jacob said, what are you doing? You know how expensive this violin is. He starts preaching to me. All of the savings of the guy's violin. I said, I'll tell you. Hillel said, well, you don't like to be done to others, but you don't want to be done to you, don't do to others. You just gave me a whole beautiful lecture about freedom and self-actualization. I believe that everything has a soul. You also, even chords of a violin have a soul. Look at these chords. They're tied down so heavily. No freedom, no liberty, no self-actualization. I'm going to cut these cords and let them soar. It was a beautiful weather outside, unique for New York. I said, we're going to take the violin outside. And the cords are going to soar in the wind, dance and sway in the beautiful, crispy air, and dance their way to heaven rather than being tied down there so tightly for your narcissistic needs to have a good violin. So I continue, uh, I start descending the, the faithful scissors on the violin, and he says, you're insane, Rabbi, you're insane, stop it. I said, what should I stop? He says, you're destroying everything. I said, where am I destroying it? I'm setting these words free. What's wrong? He says, you really don't know nothing, huh? I said, no, not much. I learned the same in Yeshiva you did. So, <laughs> I said, what's wrong? Teach me. I don't know, I don't know. He says, don't you understand? When you cut the chords that are tied down, the music will not play. I said, ah, very nice. Very nice, I like that. I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that, I told him, I'm using it. When I didn't run. When you cut the chords, the music doesn't play. In life, there are also chords. The creator of the world did not want to repress people's fun. He did not want to squash and crush the excitement of young couples who are tasting the fresh senses and odors of life and of the magic of children growing up. There's a Gemara in Brachas, I'm not going to get into it, but one of the greatest sages, Rav who went to gaze at the intimate life of his reverend of Kahana, and he was shocked to see how involved and powerful it was. And I always wondered why. And his rebel was very upset. He went into the bedroom and went under the bed. I mean, it's an interesting story. They didn't teach it to you in uh, school. So he says, what are you doing? So he says, Tyre, you alone without each other. It's Tyre. What's the Tyre? You go into another bedroom? I'll tell you, it's Tyre thousands of years later. Thousands of years later. The creator of the world didn't want to squat, squat people's excitement. On the contrary, he wanted the music to play. If you want music to play, you need chords tied. Because when chords are loose, when there's no structure and discipline in life, then the music ultimately will not play. It will play when you're in the mood, 
But then somebody else is on the news. It will play when you're in this situation with somebody else in a different situation. It's subjected to the whims of life, to the transience of life, to the selfish developments of people, and ultimately two people are very different. There's no way you can really be one with another person unless you transcend your ego and you touch the divine core in yourself, and then you can touch the divine core in your spouse, and then your fragmentations can yield to a source of oneness, which is the essence of all intimacy, which means into me see. You have to be able to see that which is in me. And then, you could be there for your child. Because if you could go to be there for children, you need to be able to sacrifice. I was invited to speak in Arizona some time ago. It was the UJA, United Jewish Appeal, as a young leadership conference. 600 bachelors come for a Shabbos, and they hang out. Young, between 30 and 45, whatever it is, 600 ever, Scottsdale, Arizona, the woman in the organizing closing says, the first time I'm having an Orthodox rabbi speak at the UJA Young Leadership Shabbat Conference. I say, okay, very well, I'm honored that you invited me. She calls me a few months in advance, not a Chabad event, they end a few months in advance. <laughs> Some of them pull a few years in advance. Right. <laughs> I'm telling you, my slave in California called me the other day and he says, Could you come tomorrow night to the rapture in California? I said, Absolutely not. He said, But I put up the songs with your name or anything. <laughs> right. So then I meet people, they say, Why didn't you come? It wasn't nice of you. Okay. It, it was very not nice of me. But in any case, I said, why do you think I'm going to come? He said, I have been talking. I said, I have been talking. <laughs> but they, you know, they work early in advance. So he pulls me up. She pulls me up and she says, you know, you're going to lead the Orthodox Civic. There's going to be a reform service, a conservative service, a galatarian service, a construction service, renewal service, and there's going to be an Orthodox service. I said, okay. But she says, all the rabbis, we always give them an opportunity to give a workshop Shabbat afternoon. You should also get that opportunity. I said, that would be wonderful. She says, but I do have to warn you, we're going to write near you Orthodox rabbi. And the crowd is very secular. So when they see a reform rabbi is giving and a conservative reconstructionist, they're going to go to them and not to you. Are you fine with speaking to two or three people? I said, I'm totally fine. I'll tell you the truth. I can even, I'm even fine talking to myself. <laughs> In fact, I do it all the time. Because I like talking in the shower, I got nobody to talk to. I talk to myself. Not only that, even when I talk to a lot of people, I usually talk to myself. And, and, and I'll tell you, and if I get the message, sorry, Rebbe, it's already good. If somebody else hears, I'm not good. If I listen to myself, it's trying to, like it says, you have to listen to what you said. So she says, Are you fine? She says, I'm going to come, and I'm going to get a friend to come. So you'll have at least two people. So, uh, she didn't know my mistress to the side. I played dumb. And I said, would you allow me to make my own title? She said, sure. I said, tell me, what's the reform rabbi's title? She says, how to educate your children. I said, you forgive me. I said, give me a title. It was Ace Lassus Hashem. So I said, give me a title. The Kabbalah of Sexuality. <laughs> I'm <laughs> sorry.
I usually don't mind those titles. It's not, it's not a word to do, but there was a, I tell you, I'm telling you an issue that was very important. And I knew men between 30 and 40, between education and my title, I knew where they're coming. Anyway, so she did a well, she was a nice woman, she listened to me, and then she put it up. What happened was, I had like 500 people, and the third or fourth rabbi ended up with four or five, maybe a million people. We go to the Shabbos, I asked my wife to go to this lecture. <laughs> for three reasons. First of all, I felt bad for the guy. He was supposed to have everybody, I took him away. So my friend, I can't go myself, I said my wife. It's my best contribution. Second of all, I didn't want her to be there. And third of all, I wanted her to appreciate me more. <laughs> so that's what we did. So she went there, and I did my uh, my spiel, my kavra about the Kabbalah of intimacy, and uh, it was it was meaningful. It was meaningful. It was powerful. Hundreds of very secular Jews, extremely secular, and they had enough chance to hear something they wouldn't hear otherwise. When I finished, I went out and I met my wife. And I said, "Esti, how was this lecture?" So she was she's a sensitive woman. She was very upset. I said, "What are you so upset?" She says, "You won't believe what he said." What did he say? He stood up and he tells the crowd, he said, I have a question. How many times in the Bible is there recorded a conversation between the first Jewish father and the first Jewish son? How many times? Anybody? The first Jewish father, Abraham, and the first Jewish son, Isaac, Yitzchak. How many conversations take place between them in Chumash and when? One. When? On the way that came, he says, You see, he never spoke to his son. He spoke to him once. On the way to slaughter him, he spoke, This is the Orthodox style. He talks to his son on the way to slaughter him. He doesn't talk to him. You know why the Bible tells us the story? To teach us how not to be. To teach us what type of father is not to be. My wife tells me, you know, it was hurtful. Not that he said it, but that nobody in the crowd, whoever was there, even knew that there was something amiss about what he said. It was accepted naturally. No one would even think that there was something erroneous about what he said. But I felt I came here. Maybe I came for this reason. I had to set the record straight. But then I thought about it. There was an interesting question that he raised. There's no conversation between Abraham and Yitzchak. Now, I have no question that they had conversations. I know they had conversations. But I'm wondering why does the Torah make a point not to record any exchange between the first Jewish father and the first Jewish son? I didn't have any books there, any swarm. It was afternoon. I still remember walking. No swarm, uh, no uh, and all these things, no library. So I didn't know. So I thought about it. I never thought about it before. And I thought of an idea, and when I had a chance, I addressed and I said, I heard what was said. With all due respect to the esteemed, uh, esteemed lecture, there's something called intellectual honesty. If you're going to quote the Bible and rely on it, for one thing, you have to rely on it on something else. You can't say, this part of the story is true, this part of the story I don't believe it. It's intellectually dishonest. I said, somebody mentioned the last conversation between Abraham and Isaac, their only conversation, on the way to that cave. 
I want you to listen to the conversation. I said, you will listen with your ears and tell me about the relationship. Because you hear a conversation, you can know the relationship. Right? They're walking. By Yoimer, Yitzchak, and Abraham, Ovid. Yitzchak said to Abraham, Abraham, his father. I don't know who Abraham is at this point at the end of my year. It's a superfluous word. It could have said, By Yoimer, Yitzchak, El Abraham. Or by Yoimer, Yitzchak, El Abraham. It would have been clear. But it says, Abraham, his father. Okay. Yitzchak said to Abraham, his father. Now I want to hear what he said. Doesn't say anything. What's the next word? And he said, You wish told me he said Yitzchak told his father. No, and he said, Okay, redundancy. Now tell me what he said. One word. Avi. My father. By your Avi. My father. By your What did Abraham say? He may here I am. My Yoimer, a third my Yoimer, a third my Yoimer. He may age, my age, and I sell the oil. This fire, the wood, where's the sheep? My Yoimer, a legitimate. Here I sell the oil. God will provide the sheep, my son. My Yoimer, Shneam, Yachtov. They walk together. I turn to the crowd. I said, now you be honest with me emotionally. Fill your hearts and tell me, is there love or there is no love? Tell me, is there a relationship there or there was no relationship? They never spoke until that point. Tell me the truth. Tell me the truth. And I said, I have another question. Some of you are fathers. If your son comes over to you Tuesday afternoon in the middle of work, or whenever it is you're walking, and he says, Father, I want to tell you something. And you say, okay. And he looks at you and he says one word. My father. What would most of you say? No, what do you No, tell But you see how busy? How many of you, your son says even one word, Avi, my father. And you look at your child and you say one word. He made me for me. I am your He made me is not a frequent term used in the Tanakh. It's used in very unique moments and very unique junctures. By your He made me for me. He made me denotes full presence, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, and physically. He made me. I said, with the due res- all due respect to the rabbi. This conversation, if you listen to it, be intellectually honest, there's a lot of love. These are not two people that never spoke to each other. They had a deep relationship. So why are there no other conversations recorded? So no other conversations are recorded, perhaps, because the Torah is teaching that the only conversation that is worth transcribing between the first Jewish father and the first Jewish son is one that is said amidst a moment of mysterious nefesh, of self-transcendence, of self-sacrifice. A conversation that is uttered in a moment when father and son went beyond their ego. That's a conversation of eternal love because that's this place where they meet 
as a splendor. Do you know that there's only one portion of the Tanakh with three names? And that's not Cana. God tells Abraham, well, the Bible says to him, Abraham, by your name, he named him, by your name, the Tanakh is beautiful. And then there's a second he named him, when Yitzhak speaks to Abraham. And then there's a third he named when the angel goes to Abraham. And he says, he named him, he says, don't, don't. Kill your land. What are the three names? The answer is only if you could say Hineni to Hashem can you say Hineni to your child. Only if you have the courage in you to be able to say Hineni to the Rebbeinu Shalom, then when your child says Avi. You can also say me. But if my entire life is about self, self, self-satisfaction, self-gratification, self-preservation, self-expression, everything is self, 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 will I really be able to say me to my child? Only when my child fits into my expectations, when my child is giving me the nachas I want, when my child is not paralyzing my life, Disturbing my schedules too much, then I can say it's so cute, I love you. But the moment my child doesn't fit into the mold that I created, suddenly this child who I love so deeply is very difficult. Suddenly I don't find myself saying he made me to my child. Why not? Because there's two types of love for a child. There's the love that's a kiss that comes from my momentary mood, and then there's a chiddush And a chiddush is when that love is connected to the source of all love. What the Rebbe is teaching us at that moment is love must be fine-tuned like a violin. Romance must be fine-tuned. Relationships must be fine-tuned. Intimacy must be fine-tuned. They can be exciting and crude and hence very short-lived. Very short-lived and still deep. And when they go to the Barbitzkas and the weddings, dressed so elegantly, and our neighbors look at us. I once had a couple that came to me and they said, as a revelation, they said, last time we were at Barbitzka, and at the smorgasbord we saw this couple, and they said their name. And they looked so happy. They were taking sushi, you know. And, and, and on the way back, we told ourselves, why can't we get along with that couple? They didn't know that before they would want to meet that couple, that couple was complaining about another couple. You understand? This is a very false world. People live in superficialities. They look at external things. And they create... Uh, mansions, mansions of, of success and sophistication that are not real, and in their bedroom and in their home there's disintegration and conflict and anger and resentment. And the solution to all of it is not more external falsehood. The solution is fine-tuning it, refining it, refinement, sublimity, transcendence, Going a little higher, going a little above, finding the deeper form of love and relationships. 
You have to spend time on your Jewishness. To go into your Jewishness. You have to become a student of Yiddish guidance. You have to learn how to pray. You have to learn how to learn. You have to learn. You have to grow. I have to grow spiritually. If I don't grow spiritually, there's no way my relationships can grow. And my dear friends, deception. You come home stressed. A lot of you work very hard. Borrow question to somebody to spend money on the credit cards. And uh, you come home stressed. You're bad mood. You want to relax. The last thing. <laughs> the last thing you want to hear are sometimes things that you hear. Many people, they snap. They lose it. So women have to be sensitive when men come home from work. It's good. It's a good idea to give them 20 minutes in which they think they're on vacation. 20 minutes is good to tell your husband you just came home. I'm so happy to thank you. I can see you. I want to thank you for working so hard on my behalf and behalf of the family. And I want you to go sit on the couch and just relax. 20 minutes. Before you tell me how miserable the day was. 20 minutes. 20 minutes. 20 minutes. And then afterwards, you give him that dignity. Then he'll do anything for you. A mop, a sweep, a tamashmak. But for 20 minutes, 20 minutes he has to be the king. If you can make it 25 minutes. Okay, that's the wife's, the wife's domain. It's a, it's a good idea, I'm telling you. And also, don't keep them hungry, because when men are hungry, they're losing it. But uh, uh, sincerely, you come home. It's very easy to snap. It's easy to scream. It's easy to let loose. But if you would have a connection with a deeper place, you would be able to transcend this. You won't lose it. You won't get angry. You won't disintegrate. You won't let it out on other people. You know why you won't let it out on other people? Because you'll be connected to a much deeper place within yourself, to a much more loving place within yourself. And then when you come home, you could hear, you could listen to her. You could see things from her perspective. Because the more you're connected to God, the more you're connected to the source that makes you one. The less you're connected, the more you're connected to yourself and fragmented. So the more fine-tuned you fine-tune yourself, the more fine-tuned you can be to your spouse. The more fine-tuned you can be to your husband. The best relationships in the world are relationships that have real goodness, real spirituality, real depth. They last a lifetime. They never fade away. They're not transient. And they're not temporary. My dear friends, I want to conclude with this little anecdote somebody told me. He came home. It wasn't from this community. It was very simple community, he tells me. In Westchester, New York, plops down on the couch. His wife went to a seminar on relationships. So they taught her to be nice to him. So she obeyed for a few minutes. And she says, Don't have anything I can do for you. You just came home. He said, Yeah, before it begins, get me a twig of beer. So she gets him a bottle of beer and he drinks it. Anything else I can do for you? He says, Before it begins, get me another bottle of beer. She brings, drinks it. He finishes it. 
He tells him before it begins, get me a third bottle. A third bottle is done. Before it begins, a fourth bottle, now she blossoms. She says, before what begins? You come home. You don't say hi. You don't talk to me. You don't ask me how my day was. You don't help with the kids. You don't say goodnight. You plop down on the couch. One bottle of beer. Another bottle of beer. Third bottle. Before it begins. Before what begins? He says, it begins. <laughs> These are natural, natural circumstances. These are natural events. This is, this is part of, this is how human beings are. To be able to come home and say, he married me. To be able to come home and say, he married me, you have to be able to be sensitive to another person's life. To be able to be sensitive to another person's life, I have to be able to transcend my own ego. To be able to transcend my own ego, I have to find God. Thank you very much.